Hi, it's Brett Cowell, and this is the Total Life Complete podcast coming to you from Deep Ellum in Texas. Today, I'm here with Suzanne Smith, founder and CEO of Social Impact Architects, social entrepreneur, and meaning counselor. Welcome, Suzanne. I also like to add professional do-gooder to that list. <laughs> there was only three things. I think people will uh, will probably hear that as we get as we get talking. Exactly. So let's talk about professional do-gooding, um, social entrepreneurship. Um, Dallas is a dream city. We'll, there's lots of ground that we can cover. Let's, yeah, let's absolutely. So the first question I ask all the guests is, how do you introduce yourself at a party when people ask who you are? Uh, That's a great question. It depends on the party. I've been going to a lot of parties for my nieces and nephews lately, so they don't care about anything except that I'm the best aunt ever. Um, So that's traditionally those kind of parties. If you're talking about adult parties, which is I assumed what you're doing, you know, I talk about myself as being a social entrepreneur, which I'm really proud to wear that um, because I think that in the past, when I first moved back to Dallas and started Social Impact Architects eight years ago, people were like, social entrepreneur, like, what is that? And now people are like, social entrepreneur, that's cool. You know, tell me more. So it just goes to show, you know, when I get down a little bit around, are we doing enough? Are we amounting to enough? It just goes to show that times have changed. Um, And there are more and more people who, you know, know what being a social entrepreneur is, takes it, you know, takes it as something that is a true profession. um, And they really understand why we're important to the makeup of any community. Maybe at some of those kids' parties, people are going to say, I want to be a social entrepreneur too. (laughs) And then your job is done. There we go. (laughs) You know, my students are that way. Um, I don't think little kids quite are like that. Although I will tell you that one of the things I did for my nieces and nephews, so every year um, at Christmas time, I actually, you know, give them like the the latest gift that they're looking for. But I also give them... um, a manila envelope where I talk about a value that I think is really important. Um, and so sometimes it's about being a dreamer. This last year it was about charity. And so they each got to donate $50 to a charity. And I was amazed at how seriously they took it. Um, and the range of charities that they chose. And when I asked them their why, well, they were like, well, I watched your Ted talk and I, you know, did research on the charity, just like you said. (laughs) So, so they pick up more than you realize. (laughs) Social impact uh, architects, um, why did you start it and what is it? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, when I started out, the word architect related to the social space was a relatively bizarre concept. Um, and But I felt like, you know, we needed to have more people who were really looking at the big picture within the social space. So if you think about it in terms of we have a lot of people that are working in the vertical, so working in poverty, working in health, working in issues of education. And, you know, I think, to be honest, I kind of tripped into it a little bit. You know, so when I was working um, in the charity space, so for the American Heart Association and Phoenix House, I'm like, why are we so siloed? It doesn't make sense to me because it's not as if the clients or the people here in Dallas only experience that silo. They interact with each other. You know, they oftentimes cause one another. You've got poor health that leads to financial issues, you know, because you can't get a job. You know, if you have bad education, that leads to income issues, you know, and you're not being able to keep a budget or have good credit, you know, so they're, they're all in, they all interact with one another. Um, and so I actually, um, was, to be honest, incredibly frustrated with the social space in my 20s. Um, And not frustrated because um, I didn't think that it wasn't a great place to work, because it is. I was frustrated at the pace of change, that, you know, I could still go to schools in, you know, the middle of Dallas, Texas, where there's this immense amount of wealth and talent and thoughtful people, and kids were still coming to school hungry. You know, and at that time, I also got a chance to visit third world countries. And you can expect that because they don't have an industry. They oftentimes don't have an economy. 
you know, they oftentimes do have a brain drain in those countries, which is reversing, thankfully now. But to me, I'm like, how is this even possible? Like we need to do better. So that frustration led to me having conversations with mentors um, and basically saying, you know, we're not doing enough. We're not moving fast enough. Um, and so I actually had lots of conversations about what should I be doing next? You know, the same kind of conversations, probably a lot of 20 somethings are having these days around, you know, what's next for them. And so I was fortunate enough that I have created a, a network of mentors and I'm a big fan of having a network of mentors that you can go to when you have these life problems. Um, and uh, one of my mentors actually gave me a book called Enterprising Nonprofits um, by Jay Gregory Dees. Um, and he was really the father, grandfather of social entrepreneurship. Um, and to be honest, as soon as I opened up the first page, I read it within one sitting one night and I had found my tribe. I'd found my language. Um, and I finally was like, oh my gosh, this is the answer to all of our problems in the social space. Um, and I, I literally mean, meant that, but then I spent the rest of the time, the last 10 years, really becoming a social entrepreneur myself, um, embedding me in, embedding in those principles, and then also passing those principles on um, and doing what I call scale and spread. Um, so that everybody kind of understands why it's really the answer to this perplexing question of why is the pace of change so uh, so little, and that why can't we go faster? You talk about the social space. That kind of uh, implies the existence of the antisocial space. <laughs> <laughs> we can be antisocial sometimes. <laughs> well, so let me talk about the, uh, when I say social space, I think it's important for you to know why I say it versus talking about the nonprofit space. So I, um, in the 20th century, nonprofits really did have a monopoly on, this, on, on things that were happening in the social space. But what people don't realize, unless they've traveled to other countries or they do research on the history of the United States, we didn't have the charity system a long time ago. When we first started this country, we didn't. And many countries don't have the civil society or civil sector. Um, and it's only been through a ton of work on the behalf of American people that we've created this industry, this nonprofit industry. And so for me, I really feel like nonprofits in the 20th century kind of had monopoly on the social space and not in a bad way, in a good way. But I think in the 21st century, we're now recognizing that in order to solve these really difficult questions, you know, these really difficult issues, thorny, messy issues that we all have to be all in. So I oftentimes say that I'm multilingual. You know, I speak nonprofit. I went to business school at Duke, so I speak business. And then I also spent a lot of time in the government space. So I'm trilingual and it's up to really all three of those institutions coming together to solve a problem. No one can solve it. It's only through the collective work of those folks uh, that they can solve it. So I oftentimes tell people I work at the intersection of nonprofit business and government mm -hmm. um, and good social entrepreneurs do that. That, that was kind of the basis of my, my, my cheeky question about the, <laughs> the anti-social space because, you know, there's people that care about other people and then there's people that care about making money. There is still a need for something uh, apart from money-making uh, in our capitalist society to actually address social needs. This still seems to be a gap and whether we call it charity, non-profit or the social sector. I totally agree, although I would push us a little bit because social entrepreneurship, the very core believes that you can do good and make money at the same time. Um, so there's a couple of principles of being a social entrepreneur that I think are important to know, because I think it's gotten a little bit watered down, you know, in, in deference to my mentor, Jay Gregory Dees, who's now recently passed away. Um, you know, it's important for us to say there's a discipline associated with social entrepreneurship. Um, so first thing about social entrepreneurship is really it is about 
this fundamental concept of taking a something that's stuck and unsticking it um, and being agnostic about the solution. Um, so you, as I jokingly say with my students, you fall in love with the, the problem. You don't fall in love with the solution. I can't tell you how many people come to me and say they're social entrepreneurs, but they want to open up, you know, a food truck for South Dallas. And I'm like, are you really a social entrepreneur then? Because have you even asked people in South Dallas if they need it? You know, and I say this tongue in cheek because they're really good people. But I said, if you want to be a social entrepreneur, you've got to go knee deep in that community and you've got to really figure out what the problem is. And they were like, well, they need healthy food. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure they do, but I'm not sure if a food truck's going to solve it. You know, um, let's really go knee deep into that community and let's actually ask them what the solution is. So that's the other fundamental principle is market-based solutions, but also that you really do go to the people that you're serving and they create the solution. They co-create it with you. It's a very bottom-up mentality. And I, I tell people that if you haven't asked people that you're serving about the problem, you probably are the problem. Um, and so you really have to make sure that whatever you're going to create is what they actually need because we have finite resources in the social space um, and also something that's going to be sustainable. Um, many of the communities that we serve, including even ones in third world countries, know that Americans come in, dive in, do some work for a short amount of time, and then we leave. You know, when the funding dries up, when interest wanes, and truthfully, part of what social entrepreneurship is about is sustainable solutions. And so sustainable solutions only can come through market-based and through embedding it in the community. And the only way you embed it in the community is if it's driven by that community, not driven by people that are coming from the outside saying they're going to fix those people. You know, and I know if people feel good when they're able to accomplish that, but trust me, you feel five times, 10 times better when you've walked away and a year later you come back and the thing you created with them is still there and they're perpetuating it. They've put their stamp on it and they've even taken it on for themselves and said, this is the thing that we started. Then, you know, it'll last 10 years, 20 years and the legacy will live on. So social entrepreneurs have a very specific discipline that they follow. The other thing that I think is also important is it's not about us. So anytime you see someone who's a celebrity social entrepreneur, they're not really a social entrepreneur because they really are about putting the people they're serving first and that the people that they're serving are the ones who are, should be in front of the camera, should be telling their story, um, should be the one that we're talking about. Um, and they're there as a vessel um, in order to create that. I'm thinking of that old saying uh, about teaching a person to fish and yeah. <laughs> giving a fish. So, you know, you can give the person a fish, you can teach them how to fish, but but maybe based on what you're saying, you also need to see whether they live near the ocean <laughs> or they like fish, <laughs> whether the fish is what they need. I think that's a really, I think that's a great adage, um, you know, because you're right, you are assuming that they even like fish and you're assuming that's what they want. Um, I also have to, have to say Bill Drayton, who's also oftentimes considered a father of social entrepreneurship, says, you know, it's not enough to give a man a fish. It's not even enough to teach a man to fish. What you need to do is revolutionize the fishing industry. Right, right, right. You know, and so that's where a lot of times people are now calling social entrepreneurs system builders. Right. You know, essentially we're going in and trying to figure out how do you create systems that actually work in favor of communities versus some of the disincentives we create for people to change their lives. I think you've kind of covered it because, you know, you could kind of say, well, we've got charity. Why do we need social entrepreneurship? Right. Um, okay, so I've got a great answer for that. So part of the reason why we are not able to solve some of the social issues um, that are in front of us is really about resources. 
So let's just do the math because you know you and I are both MBAs, and so we believe in quantitative versus just qualitative. So let's turn this into a quant conversation. Uh, for those of you on the listening to the podcast, uh, you'll appreciate this. So think about it: two percent of our GDP, and it's you know sometimes it averages more. Like now during some of the hurricane season, people are giving more. No, um, but two percent of our GDP is considered. Um, money that goes into the charitable sector. It's really not changed since the 1970s. So you look at the ebbs and flows of different time periods, it hasn't changed. So part of what we as social entrepreneurs say is how do we tap into that 98%? You know, how do we get people to invest in social solutions? And so I'll give you a great example of one I'm super excited about and is here in locally, uh, and that's impact investing. And so what if instead of putting your retirement in various stocks, you know, or putting your retirement into a for-profit app of some sort, you know, what if you could actually invest in a social cause and also get a return? And so it's really tapping into that other 98%. So in addition to going to, you know, nonprofit groceries and buying stuff from, you know, Tom's Shoes or down the street, Soap Hope, et cetera, what if instead of just your purchasing power, you could actually, you know, put your um, retirement into things, you could actually invest in things that matter. So I'll give you a good example. Pay for success is one tool in the impact investment portfolio. Where essentially we're saying that we believe in prevention and it's in pay for success. If you look it up, has been used in education. It's been used in criminal justice. It's been used in housing here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. I'm actually working with the folks in Fort Worth and they truly have figured out how we will not have a recidivism rate. So, you know, to me, it's, I understand that people commit a crime and they should do their time. Absolutely agree with that. But to me, the real crime is when they come back and we don't have a system that can support them. I don't know about you, but when you're given a very little money and you come back to a community that maybe lets you down in the first place, a zip code that is in, impoverished, doesn't have jobs, has very little housing, you know, and, and your only choice is to recommit crime in order for you to make money to put food on the table, that's a difficult position to be put in. So what they've done in Fort Worth is they have a thing called the first stop. So can you imagine if instead you come back and there are these people who are welcoming you back to your community and saying, we have a housing voucher for you and we've got a class in manufacturing and in two weeks you can be certified and you can go get a job for $40,000. It doesn't matter that you're an ex-felon, you know, because you've turned your life around. You've got a second chance. Oh, and oh, by the way, we're going to help you with some of your legal issues related to child support because we've got pro bono legal counsel who can help you with that. Um, and we also have, you know, you figure out ways for you to actually get some food. There's a food pantry here too, so you can take some food home immediately. So you're not having to build your life back from scratch. We're giving these folks a leg up. And what they've found, and if you look at the average statistics in Texas, 40% um, of our people go back to prison. So to me, we've basically just created this revolving door. Um, and in their particular program, only 10% go back. So why aren't we funding this? Well, because the government, you know, can't make that kind of a, a risk. You know, it's kind of a gambling bet in a lot of ways. Um, and so those reentry programs can be costly because it does take time and effort to staff them and put it together. So what pay for success allows you to do is private investors can now go pay for that reentry program. And then they make a deal with the government saying for those people, for the delta of between the 40% and the 10%, if we invest in them, will you give us the cost savings when they don't go to prison? when all of us save money because they don't go back to prison. And not to mention the money, but the quality of life. You know, they're now 
uh, people who are propelling our economy forward. They're people who are paying taxes. So not even looking at all of these other benefits that they're creating for our community, but just the not going back to prison part. And so pay for success allows you and me, people who are just regular average Joes to say, you know what, I'm going to put my money, my excess dollars in my retirement, instead of putting it into a stock, I'm going to put it into investing in my fellow man um, and investing in these reentry programs so that they can exist in my local community. Um, and then what ends up happening is that money then propels back into the organizations and you've created an endowment so those reentry programs can exist in perpetuity versus right now in the charity space where it just depends on whether they have the grant, you know, and whether the grant actually pays for the things they actually need. And so we basically are year to year cobbling together as nonprofits what we can provide these people versus if we have private investment, we know we can come up with a stellar program that makes a difference. So to me, that's a perfect example of where we're going. Um, which is we're investing in the things we actually know work and not waiting for government to figure out a way to make it work, um, that we're doing it ourselves and we're using our hard-earned dollars to invest in our fellow man. You know, I kind of look at social entrepreneurship in a uh, on the long arc of capitalism. Capitalism, when it started, was very much about capital, about building big machines and factories and, and getting workers in and, and doing that uh, sort of stuff. And then clearly the people that made money for that were also the patrons of charities, et cetera. Well, yeah, and Andrew Carnegie started libraries in the United States, you know, so they did a lot of things to really understand how uh, short-term bets could, could lead to long-term gains for our society. Okay, and we, we come tens and hundreds of years down the track now to see as this art continues, um, capital is not necessarily the source of, uh, of, uh, of power in businesses. You could say a long, long time ago we've moved to a service economy and then a knowledge economy and then right. perhaps to an influence economy now already uh, and all of those coexisting at the same time. Um, so I'm just wondering if social entrepreneurship is something that is uh, is going to be here for a period of time and then eventually be incorporated into what we call our economy, whether we call that a capitalist economy or not. You know, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I do hope I you know live to a time where social entrepreneurship gives way to it just being the way entrepreneurs think about the world or nonprofits think about the world. And so you don't really have to have people like me who are kind of intermediaries that are kind of pushing um, and kind of poking um, that we really do have more people inside organizations. I call them social entrepreneurs um, that actually just think this way. You know, I would love to put myself out of business and say, you know, I don't need you don't need people like me anymore really poking and prodding and saying, can't we do better? You know, what if we come together and try to do something different, better, um, more sustainable, move away from kind of this uh, idea of creating innovation all the time and moving towards impact and scale um, where everybody can seek the benefits of the work that we're doing. So um, I think there's a couple of things. I would say if I were to look at the various classes, I would say some of the ways in which I would move, we would move towards that. First of all is entrepreneurs. And this is where the good news is. I think if, you know, I look at the people who are entrepreneurs around me and I look at the people who I teach um, in entrepreneurship classes, they already understand the importance of having a social DNA kind of baked into who they are. Um, and so that is a good thing. I think they still struggle with exactly how to do it and how to do it very deeply into their value chain, but they at least are trying to think it through and they're open to it. 
Um, and so I think that's very promising is that we see entrepreneurs moving in that direction. And so long term, I'm hoping that we don't have to have you know, socially entrepreneurial incubators because it's just baked into what we do and that everybody really feels like part of their bottom line is also a social bottom line um, or an environmental bottom line and not just a bottom line related to profit. I think one of the things that's propelling that is the generation, the generational shift, but also it's being proved proven by the statistics. You know, if you look at some of the different statistics around Wall Street companies, so I'll now move to companies, um, the people who are doing good actually are doing better on Wall Street, you know, and so there's lots of different examples of people looking at the S&P and analyzing various companies and rating them. And now we have these rating systems around social good, um, including one that I'm a part of, which is called a benefit corporation. And so um, what we're finding is those who are doing good and not just, you know, and we were talking about this uh, earlier, taking a, a little piece of their profits and throwing it to a nonprofit and hoping it does good, but really does what I call strategic corporate responsibility, really thinking through how their value chain is impacted, how, how they actually engage their employees in a community in a meaningful, sustained way, um, how they actually leverage their core competency um, to the benefit of society. So not just in making cars, not just in making shampoo, but how do they use that kind of, um, that philosophy and that kind of ingrained core competency to improve the world. Um, and so, so to me, you see more companies who are getting it. I still think it's a struggle for them because it, um, you know, it's, it's a change of, of thought process versus just profit, profit, profit. But I do think that the statistics, you know, the statistics that from cone communications, the statistics from some of the research that's being done at universities around, uh, or companies that do social good really bear out the fact that in the long run from an employee perspective, so an HR perspective, from a marketing perspective, and now from a financial perspective, they're more likely to be successful. And so I think um, companies are getting that message um, and they're really working hard to beef up their so corporate social responsibility groups and not having them be an isolated group in marketing, but having them be a cross-functional team that really works across all their departments. Um, and then lastly, I think nonprofits are, are really stepping up and they don't, um, you know, they're stepping across lines and starting to work with government related to advocacy. They're working with companies and realizing that companies can help them move their mission farther. Um, they're working with entrepreneurs and, and actually thinking about entrepreneurial ways to tackle issues. Um, and so that's really promising as well, because at the end of the day, the nonprofits are the experts in the social space. They will never be, uh, they will not, companies and entrepreneurs are never going to have the same kind of expertise. And so we really do need nonprofits to be part of that equation and need to be brought in that expertise because they're the ones closest to the clients and closest to the community. What's the logical extension of, of corporate social responsibility? You know, I think it's like anything where it's an evolution. And I think as you start seeing more and more millennials and Gen Xers, you know, that's my generation getting into the leadership of corporations, that's going to change. Um, I also think, to be honest, this creates an, an equity conversation. I think once we have more equity within corporations, there's going to be a natural shift that will just happen because I think there are people who just naturally get it and they understand what it's like to come from a, a family that's low income or in poverty. And they're going to, they're the values that who, of who they are infect the organization they're, they're leading. Um, and I think we're seeing that. Um, so from my perspective, I think we have some really good actors in this space. 
Um, and I think those good actors are probably the best influencers. Um, you know, I recently wrote Jeff Bezos from Amazon and, um, he actually, you know, did that big Twitter thing about what, what should I be involved with? And I basically said to him, you're asking the wrong question because what you're going to get is poverty, education. You're going to get the same verticals, but truly what we need you to do is we need to work. You need to be working at the horizontal level. You know, the best possible thing you can do is go infect every other corporate CEO in the tech space and say, what are you doing for the, for the collective community good? And how do we make sure that the things we create like Twitter and Facebook and even Amazon are doing good? Um, and that we have vigorous um, standards that we set. You probably recently saw that Amazon, you know, had a, a shirt that they were selling, which was in poor taste. You know, how does Amazon not have that happen? You know, how does Twitter make sure, you know, so to me that all of these new great inventions and ideas, and I love all of them. I'm a huge Amazon, Facebook, and Twitter supporter, but how do we make sure all this good that we're creating in the tech space doesn't have unintended consequences? To me, that's one of the best things he could do is be a champion for those things. Um, and to do it in a proactive way rather than in a reactive way and be like, oh, I'm so sorry we're selling that shirt. But instead say, now we have a corporate policy that we're going to go, you know, it's going to be screened on certain criteria before we'll put something like that on Amazon because it doesn't represent our values. And again, I don't mean to pile on Jeff Bezos, but he asked the question. And to me, the question isn't what, what charity he needs to be a part of or where his money should go. To me, it's to your point where his influence should go. Um, and I think his influence is actually priceless in comparison to the money he could actually give. Let's circle back to uh, social impact architects <laughs> because I mean you've already talked about yeah. putting yourself out of business before I think I've given you a proper opportunity to say what you do and which is, is admirable incidentally I think that's completely the right attitude I think anyone working in a charity should be hoping that they can be out of business yeah. <laughs> you know it's not a natural human instinct to want to do that we like security and things like that but yeah. if we're serious about a cause we'd be happy if that cause eventually went away why doesn't everybody with a good idea and a good intent go off and be successful and solve these problems straight away? You know, that's a great question. And I, um, you know, I think I'm a lot, a very entrepreneurial at my very core. You know, even when I was a little kid, I was an entrepreneur and I was a social activist. So I was a social entrepreneur before I even realized that that was the vernacular. Um, so it just came very naturally to me. And then, of course, when I read J. Gregory D.'s book, I realized, oh, all this time I've been a social entrepreneur and I didn't realize it. Um, and so that's part of what I try to do is I try to wake that up in people, you know, because to me, I think most people either in the social space or the corporate space um, don't feel like something's off and feel like something's wrong and, and don't feel, always feel good about what they're doing or their instincts are saying, I know there needs to be something done differently, but I just don't know what and how. Um, and so I was one of those people, you know, so for me, I'm really paying it forward. You know, I got the, the great opportunity to follow Greg D's to study under him. And now I feel like it's kind of my mission to bring out that aha in other people so that they can start their own journey. Um, and that can be a nonprofit who reads my blog and it's a do it yourself kind of way of accomplishing it. Um, or it could be someone who sits in my training and says, you know what, I really want to explore these things along with you and take it back to my organization. Or it can be a nonprofit or a company, or it can be a, um, 
social entrepreneur who says to me, you know, um, I really feel like I need some coaching and I need some kind of counseling around this. Um, can you, can you stand alongside me for a while? Um, and help me with a strategic plan, helping me, help me push my impact, help me create something in my community that is really meaningful. And so what I do in that case is really work with them to co-create. Um, and then of course, you know, my favorite thing probably to do is to teach. And so I also teach, uh, uh, and I'll be teaching a spring course at the University of Texas at Arlington on social entrepreneurship. So again, that next generation who's coming up and deciding what they want to do next, no matter where they go, nonprofit business, be an entrepreneur, that that seed is planted um, and that they you know, are hopefully transformed in the right way so that when they do get opportunities to make decisions, that, they're, they're, that, that value base is there for them. Um, and the, that disciplined way in which we look at problems is also there for them, that they can they can really utilize it. So that's really my mission. And so at some point when everybody knows what social entrepreneurship is and everybody's practicing it, then I can go retire and do the next thing, you know? Um, but for now, I feel like that part of my job is to share my story, um, to roll up my sleeves at some, every once in a while and help other organizations go out and speak and spread the word. Uh, write blogs that are fun and accessible and tell a story along with learning a little bit. Um, my mom calls it a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Um, it's hard to make Six Sigma interesting, um, and I, but I try my best. <laughs> but my goal is to make these concepts which are incredibly boring and will put people to sleep. And most of my competitors, so, you know, quote unquote, are writing 20 page articles that are not applicable to the nonprofit space. And so they get discounted that it actually is meaningful and that immediately they walk away from my speech, from my consulting engagement, from my workshop. And they're like, I can do this. This is easy. And I'm going to go do it tomorrow. Um, and that's really my, my mission. So at some point, let's hope that I achieve that mission and I can go on and retire and sit on a beach somewhere and do something else. What else is there? Uh, what else is there? To, <laughs> I'm sure I will find something. <laughs> okay, so let's start with teaching social entrepreneurs how to be successful entrepreneurs, why right. that's needed and why people sometimes forget that that's needed. You know, I've got my the best analogy I can give on that is that right now in the social space and the social space I grew up in, by the way, so this is this is my home. Um, basically, right now, to, for the most part, are using hammers and nails. And oftentimes it's secondhand hammers, you know, maybe they have the right nail, maybe they don't. My goal is social entrepreneurs, you know, part of my job is to give them power tools, you know, give them real ways to connect to their donors, to connect with their clients, um, to connect with their employees that are, you know, easy and meaningful and actually get results. Um, and so it just feels much more empowering when you feel like you actually directionally know where you need to go. Um, and that that direction is, um, thoughtful, data-driven, um, and you have a high likelihood of being successful, you know, so that's part of my job is to really, you know, help, help infuse that. Um, and, you know, I think right now in this space, there is a confidence gap. Um, and you and I talked about this, and it's one of the things that I hold the for-profit space somewhat guilty of is that, you know, we have all these for-profit board members who go into nonprofits and try to tell nonprofits what to do which there's nothing wrong with. You know, I love the fact that there's so many for-profit folks who come in and give of their time. But what they don't realize is that the CEOs in those spaces have so few resources 
and oftentimes don't understand the business principles that they're bringing to the table because again, they grew up in social work or as an educator or at grassroots levels as a community activist. And so it's part of all of our jobs to understand what our strengths are and for us to be equals. But oftentimes the people who have money or the people who are for-profit folks see themselves as superior to the nonprofit space. And again, if you go back to the principle of being a social entrepreneur, your job is to co-create with those people. It is not a deficit mindset, it is a strength-based mindset. So when I go into a community and I talk to people about, oh, these people are poor, oh, these people don't have, you know, they're hungry, and I'm like, but they're also resilient. They're also incredibly special people that have a ton of gifts. Um, there's so many things we can learn from the people that we're serving. And so part of what I want to do is correct the imbalance between the for-profit and the nonprofit space um, and make sure that people recognize, one, that, not, that CEOs stand in their expertise and I equip them with the power tools so that they really can do what they need to do and communicate with the for-profit space in the way that they need to be communicated with. Um, but I do think that we've created imbalance between the for-profit and the nonprofit space that's got to get corrected. Um, so again, part of my job is to create those power tools so that the communication lines can be more specific between the for-profit and the nonprofit space and that translation happens better. Um, and then of course on the, the government side, I do that, try to do that as well. How can we just make a step change in the effectiveness and reach of social entrepreneurs? So a couple of things. So first of all, I talked about this earlier, but I can't under underscore it enough fall in love with the problem, do not fall in love with the solution. So I think oftentimes because there are federal grants or there are people telling you what a quick solution could be, you don't really look at the entire system and realize that sometimes there are unintended consequences. And the, the nonprofits that I love are the ones that consistently innovate. You know, and there's one right down the street, City Square, who's a good example of that. You know, they used to do one thing and then they realized it didn't work, so then they pivot. You know, it's not failure, it's just pivoting. You know, and so they are really good about making sure one, they're very closely connected to the people that they're serving. Even when the people they're serving disagree, they still listen. You know, Larry James and I both strongly believe that you need to be listening as much to the people who are championing you as the people who are not, you know, the people who actually are disagreeing with you because there's a kernel in that disagreement that could be the truth. Um, and so he's wonderful at that. Uh, I also think the other big mistake that people make as social entrepreneurs is not building their toolkit first, you know, um, it, you know, the nonprofit space is professionalized, you know, and, and I see so many people and no offense to anybody who wants to do this, but that come to me and say, they want to start a nonprofit. And I, I realize and appreciate the, the genuine intention that's behind that. But the truth is we probably don't need another nonprofit. I would much prefer you go work with an existing nonprofit who is either doing what you're doing or at a tangential level, maybe doing what you're doing and you could actually inspire them. And, um, and to me, the infrastructure alone with creating a nonprofit is a lot. Um, and so you're in some ways you're wasting your time and energy building infrastructure when you could just be going and volunteering or working for an organization and propelling them forward. I tell everybody, I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have three years working for Phoenix house and five years working at American heart association. And they gave me the keys to the castle. They basically said, you know what, here's the thing we need you to do, go do it. And I was an inside, you know, internal consultant basically for them. And so not only did I, was I able to explore 
some really valid concepts of entrepreneurship, but I also was able to make a salary at the same time and build accrue retirement, you know? And so being an entrepreneur, while we hold it up as being the be all end all, and we think it's sexy and cool, financially, it's not always easy and particularly in the social space. Um, so I highly encourage people to really think about what's important to them and also think about their theory of change. Do they want to you know, build that thing because they want to build a legacy for themselves or do they want to solve the social issue um, and create a legacy for their community? Um, and sometimes those things don't work together very well. Sometimes they, they're great, but you know, um, I worry about social entrepreneurship becoming so mainstream that everybody wants to start something. And that's not the point of social entrepreneurship. The point of social entrepreneurship, as I said at the very beginning, is to unstick things. And that may not be about starting something. Um, and so we've, we've kind of fallen in love with social entrepreneurship in a way that I think it worries me that we've forgotten the fundamental reasons why it got started in the first place. What's the best way to get involved? And I, I think you've talked about this uh superiority complex i'm just going to bring that back into this question as well because i mean clearly there's people have done mbas and, and phds and they've got immense business skills and and think i'm ready to help but it, it that doesn't necessarily not all those skills are going to be directly translatable and some may even be at counterproductive right. if it's a mindset or skill set so how do people succeed in in getting involved yeah i t i and i i hate to always harp on this but Part of your job, you know, when you go in and help is to make sure first do no harm, you know, and so I've seen so many, you know, I just actually talked with someone last week as a little, just to give you a sense of the story, there was a nonprofit who got this really great gift from a consulting firm that will go unnamed, but a big box consulting firm, and they were going to have their people when they had time come in and interview clients. Um, they showed up on a Friday because of course that's their time off. They were late, they didn't bring food, and their, they, their clients, they knew the clients were Hispanic, didn't bring anybody who spoke a lick of, of Spanish, only spoke English. And they didn't realize there was a problem with that. You know, yes, you're giving of your time, but you also have to respect the people as professionals. And you also have to, you know, go where they are. They also were dressed up and drove their fancy cars there. You know, so instantly, whatever information they were gonna get from the clients, there was already a barrier. You know, I tell people whenever I go talk to clients, I'm in jeans and in a ponytail, you know, I mean, and I, to me, part of my job is to, to blend in and to make someone feel comfortable, you know? And so, um, part of what I think we make the mistake of is assuming that the tools or the way in which we operate in the for-profit space translates in the nonprofit space, rather than really thinking about if my job is to communicate with someone, how do I communicate with them and break through? You know, um, they also didn't realize it was offensive to expect the client uh, supervisor to translate for them. They didn't ask ahead of time. So she had a full day of work, real work to do in case management, and she had to drop everything. Um, and so they didn't realize that even though they were giving her a gift in some ways, they actually ended up creating more problems than they actually solved in that particular day and within that particular engagement. So I just give that as a cautionary tale because I think all of us would agree those folks who showed up in their Mercedes and showed up in suits and showed up way they did probably had zero clue that they were causing a problem. They had no idea. So I would just encourage you to really reach out to people and help them say, what is it you really need? And how can I show up for you to make you successful? 
not to feel good about myself, but to make you successful um, and make sure that you're presenting yourself in a way that doesn't come across as superior or doesn't come across as uh, in a way that I don't think people intend. Um, so here would be my suggestion to answer your question more specifically. And this goes back to your book, which I have to give you kudos for doing. Um, find your gift. You know, what is the thing you're super good at? And there are plenty of nonprofits who need that. And maybe you go serve on their board and you're an active board member that helps them with that particular thing. And maybe it's accounting or maybe it's that you're great at an operational ability and you can help um, a food pantry become more operationally uh, quick so that people don't have to stand in line anymore. Or maybe it's um, you're a lawyer and you could go help them improve their uh, legal practices and reduce their risk you know, through risk management. Maybe it's that you're an HR and you could help them come up with a talent strategy so they have the most talented people wanting to come work for that nonprofit. All of those things are like gold for nonprofits. And I will tell you, those things in combination make a nonprofit unstoppable because they have the right resources at that moment to do what they need to do. When they have talent, when they have a good strategy, when they have an active board, um, when they really are in depth in a community and they're going deep, they're gonna make a difference. And they're gonna make a difference at an exponential level because of board members like that individual. So that's what I would do is really understand your unique gift. And then also the issue you're incredibly passionate about the one that you just can't go to sleep about because you want to read one more article about whatever it is, whether it's early childhood, criminal justice, the arts, there's so many issues. I mean, the fabric of our civil society is exceptional. And the number one issue that I hear from a lot of nonprofits is they can't get high quality board members. So I would say first become a board member, get to know the animal of a nonprofit and how it's different than the space you're operating in retail, maybe what you're used to or banking or whatever. Nonprofit is its own unique animal. They do things differently. They have nuances just like your industries. You know, get to know them, be active, be engaged, you know, bathe in the the community. You know, I oftentimes will say if you're representing a nonprofit in South Dallas and you've never been to South Dallas, that's a problem. So, you know, go to those community events, you know, invest yourself, go volunteer and read. Um, those are the things that will get you to understand if you don't understand already the depth at which it's difficult to get out of poverty or to change your trajectory in your life so that you fully can understand and appreciate it. So that when you're then in the elevator with somebody and they say, well, what are you up to these days? You can not only say I work at XYZ company, but you know, the thing I'm really excited about, I just joined this board and you know, the amazing things they're doing in South Dallas, every kid that comes to them is now on, on grade level with reading. And as a result, they're 90% likely to graduate. And I can guarantee you, you will well up inside. The other person will start asking questions and who knows, maybe we'll even donate and join a board too. So that's the infectiousness that I think when you really are passionate and you're really giving your gift, that'll just come to you. And so that'd be my first suggestion. And a great suggestion too. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of ways to get involved. And a, a lot of folks that might feel that they're successful, but are looking for more meaning in their life, think, oh, I'll give back. Uh, and, and if I could kind of build on what you've been saying, yeah, please. Is if you want to do some great personal development, go and try and give back and, and you'd be surprised that you'll probably get more out of it in the short oh, term yes. than you'll actually give. That's been my personal experience. And oh, I think it's, it's a very humbling. And I think, to be honest, if you want to be happier, be, be humbler in life well, <laughs> as well. And you and I've talked about that. I'm kind of an amateur uh, brain research person. Like I read all the brain research that comes out and there's a new study that recently said that the, um, 
people who do a lot of positive psychology actually have done research of the brain and they think actually happiness is not the key for life. It's actually purpose. And the people who have purpose, actually the consequence of that is they do have happiness. Mm -hmm. So if you keep driving towards happiness, you're never going to hit it. But if you go towards purpose and you have a reason to get up in the morning and jump out of bed and you're contributing to society and you're clicking on all levels and you're in flow most of the time, then you're going to be by very nature of that happy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will honestly tell you the happiest people are the ones who volunteer. I mean that if I ever want, you know, if there's ever a day that I'm, I'm struggling for whatever reason, you know, I'm getting beaten down by the issues. I just go volunteer. I go spend some time with a kid. Um, I go spend time with um, someone that's in a senior center. We talk about kids a lot, but we have a lot of seniors who don't see anybody all day. Don't have visitors. Um, you can easily go adopt a senior, you know, at your local senior center or the person down the street you know, that maybe doesn't, you know, is living independently, but doesn't have a lot of visitors, you know, go take them a bundt cake, go have a conversation with them, go clean up their front yard. You will feel amazing afterwards. It'll turn any day upside down and you will be able to feel good about yourself that day. Would the world be a better place if women were in charge or more <laughs> in charge than they are now? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things I have become more aware of, and, and you may know this, I ran for office and uh, ran for school board. And, uh, you know, when you run for office, you, you, people are 100% honest with you. Like, I think in most life, you kind of get this like, oh, you did such a good job on that. Or, oh, you're such a great person. And when you run for office, for whatever reason, the community feels like they own you um, and they have an opportunity to vote for you. And so the, the power structure gets shifted. Um, and so if you ever really want to know what people think about you, you run for office and, and you get a sense. It's very sobering. Um, so it's really helped me rethink the power structure in Dallas um, and also to the way in which we treat women, the way in which we treat minorities who, by the way, the Hispanic community is going to be majority in 10 years. So we can't even call them minorities anymore. Um, and the way in which we view the world and how limited our perspective is. Um, and so I don't say that women should be more in office or that I feel like people who have broad, open-minded viewpoints are the ones who should be in office. The people who realize that when they run, they're not running to represent their interests, they're representing other people's interests and their collective interests. So the reason why I think women, women and particularly people who have been disadvantaged in their lives, so whether the minority or otherwise, should more of those people should run for office is because I do think they have a worldview where they realize not a lot has been given to them, but a lot of people have given to them and they have a much more bigger worldview of things. Um, at some point in, in this world where will everybody have that viewpoint? I hope so. Um, so I don't necessarily say it's, you know, this person, this group of people's problem or this group of people are going to be the solution. I personally think open mindset is the key to everything. And it just so happens that I think women have more of an open mindset, I think. Um, just based on, I think they've been the psychology. I also think they have more empathy. And so I think they can connect with people in a different way. And they're looking at the big picture, but I don't think that that's something men can't cultivate. I've seen it happen. I've seen plenty of men out there who I would fight alongside every day of the week. Um, and I also think we need to have more minorities in spots. I think I told you, I, I now have a personal agenda that I will not speak and I will not serve on any panel unless there are the, the panel is diverse and I am an equal opportunity person. If there's not a white male on the panel too, I have a problem with that, you know? So you've got to make sure that the audience sees themselves and the panelists. 
And there needs to be diversity in age. There needs to be a diversity in ethnicity. There needs to be a diversity in gender. And I just won't do it anymore. Um, and I appreciate when other people do that. So my personal heroes are the white males out there that will stand up for me and stand up for other minorities. And I wish more white males would do that. And I think that would be the counterbalance we actually need. What also excites me is this kind of evolution of human consciousness. <laughs> and, and I think to have a you know, fair and just society that is sustainable and, and, and other things, you need to, um, there needs to be an, an evolution of our collective values, you know, not just saying, okay, well, uh, life is about trying to earn as much money as you can and, and, and that, that's it. You know, sure, that's something people can spend their life how, how they want to, but in the book and, and in our, uh, my own blog and things like that, there's wrestled a lot with this kind of idea of success. And, you know, the idea of success that I grew up with was to climb the corporate ladder and make lots of money and right. have access to wonderful experiences. And, and being from a working-class family, you know, I didn't really question that too much, and I did that, and that was really nice. So <laughs> that was fine. Well, but and I will tell you, I feel sorry for a lot of white males because we have trained them over time to be strong and to be smart and to fight for what they need, you know, not only through sports, but through, you know, like you said, the corporate structure. While on the flip side as women, I'm taught to be kind, you know, and to be pretty, you know, and that's what we cultivate. That's the, that's how we communicate messages of what your worth is. Um, and so I'm of course the opposite. I, you know, grew up with all girls and my dad was a football coach. So he taught us to be both strong um, as well as, you know, kind. And so in some ways, I feel like if we could just create all people to be kind and to be smart and to be empathetic, and we didn't have these gender issues that kind of got into play, that's the world I'm hoping for. That, you know, the kindness is cultivated in men, the strength is cultivated in women, and then when they grow up, they can just be whole individuals. Um, and so that's really, I think, the goal that we need to set for ourselves um, and yes, there are, there are nuances related to our biology and kind of how things, who we are that kind of make us slightly different, but that's what, how we create a mosaic of people coming together to create good. Um, and that's what makes it interesting. We don't want to create people who are just like one another. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of the issue that I have with talking about, oh, women should have this or men should have this. I think it really needs to be about how do we cultivate all people to have a whole treasure trove of assets that they're creating around self-confidence and strength and, you know, standing up for themselves, but also being kind and being open-minded. Like to me, there's, a, there's lots of different things. And that's one of the reasons why I fought during my campaign for social and emotional development. So I absolutely believe that academically you need to be gifted. And even in my entrepreneurship class, I give them the hard tools that they're going to need, those power tools. But I also tell them at the same time, the same way I think teachers need to be able to teach young children that truthfully, the thing that differentiates a, a good person and a successful person from somebody who's just uber successful is resilience and self-confidence and what I call bounce back factor. Um, and so I equally teach them how to make decisions, how to, how to get past failure, you know, how to get past that no, how to present themselves. Um, the same way we should be teaching kids about character and kindness um, and resilience and overcoming obstacles. And so we just have not, we've underemphasized that, I think, in a U.S.-based society where education and achievement has become so important. But I think the people who are going to be truly successful in the 21st century are going to be able to balance achievement and relationships, the hard and the soft. Male, women, gender, I mean, gender doesn't matter to me. It's how do you get results based on what you're trying to do? 
Yeah, and I, I need to, with your help, find out replacement words for hard and soft. I just think there's just something. Oh, I agree. Oh. I hate them too. Because as the listeners know, there's something about, and this is a very maybe an MBA way of looking or a practical way of looking at the world. You kind of start with the end in mind and you say, okay, what do you want? I want a happy, meaningful life. Well, what skills do I need to do that? Well, I need good relationships. I need to be able yeah. to know who I am and what I stand for and things like that. And only after a long, long, long list of, of things do you, do you get to, uh, these are my technical capabilities and my yeah. How many master's degrees have I got? These so-called soft skills are the things that fundamentally are key to living a happy, meaningful life. So I, I don't know. Let's think of a new name for it, Suzanne. I totally agree. I think that I, there are a lot of things that I would change the name of if I could, um, because I think the name does a disservice. Um, and hard and soft is one of those that I think we absolutely should put on the list of something that needs to change. Because again, it creates bias there. The hard is more oh. important than the soft is less important. Um, so yes, we will work on that. That'll be, we'll put that on our collective to-do list. I'm going to write it down here as well, just because then uh, something will happen about it. What I, I will tell you, one of the things I've been working on right now, I call it IQ, EQ, and SQ. Yeah. So I like that better because IQ mm. to me is something you build over time and it kind of gets to that toolkit or that hard that we're talking about. Um, EQ is the thing. And if you look at the research, it's oftentimes connected with the soft stuff. Um, but it oftentimes is something that, um, you really do get in your first 20 years of life. And it really is something that you can cultivate long-term, but it's harder. Like you become imprinted very early on with what your social and emotional control is. Um, and whether you get angry easily, whether you're kind, you know, those types of things get imprinted on you very early and it's harder to move past that. Um, and then SQ is the new one that I've been spending a lot of time on. And it basically, some people call it spiritual quotient. Um, some people call it system quotient. Um, I, I kind of use those interchangeably, but it's then how do you connect the dots, you know, between the two? Um, and so to me, it's, I don't, I look for people who not only are really super smart and are able to connect with people, but also be able to figure out how they translate between the two, you know, how they can effort effortlessly be situational. Um, and so in one case they can be, like I said earlier, be in a t-shirt and jeans and a ponytail, but in the next be sitting in a corporate meeting and be completely professional and connect with people in a way that they need to be communicated to. So, um, to me, that's heavy SQ where you kind of understand where, what and where you should be at any given time, um, in order to make sure whatever you communicate gets heard. I've been thinking a lot this week about, you know, how do you help people adapt to the current world that we live in and help to make a better world you know right. and that's something i think about actually maybe everyone does or doesn't but that's certainly something i think a, a lot about particularly this week um our attention is drawn into so many things you know even our fundamental um our ability to do work and make a change in the world is becoming difficult because we're being overloaded by all of this different information and stresses and things so i'm kind of starting my list of capabilities and traits needed to to thrive in the new world and and one of those is to be situationally adaptive and, yeah. and things like that and and the other things that you've talked about i think sq i hadn't heard that term but it's something that i've written about um the need to integrate mind body and soul or, or yeah. the, the, the other elements and to actually be able to deploy that in different ways in different situations i agree you and i were talking about self-care earlier and i i call it radical self-care because i think people think self-care is just hanging out with friends but it's really more understanding what drives you forward and everybody's different everybody, you know everybody has a different formula 
that causes them to be relaxed and be in flow and, you know, really be able to be connected with who they are and who they're meant to be, you know, cause we're all on this journey, you know? And so I'll give a, a little snippet into something that was life changing for me, you know, so I, you know, went to business school and, you know, that sounds very odd to a lot of people, but I was a pure nonprofit person. There was a little bit of me that thought business was evil. You know, and I, actually I was looking at different business schools. I was kind of like, I can't go to that one because at the info session, all they talked about was making money. And you know, I'm right about that. Like, that's true. That's changed now. But back then it was definitely that way. And so I really felt like a fish out of water going to business school. I'm like, all these people are going to be smarter than me. I grew up in small town, Texas. I'm a girl. I'm in the nonprofit space. They're going to be, you know, instantly demeaning to me because, you know, they'll think I haven't done as much as they have, haven't made as much money, haven't done the traditional format of success. But I showed up the first day. And one of the reasons why I chose Duke is because to me, it, it breaks that mold every which way. Um, you know, they love the fact that I'm doing this. They see education as a means to an end, a means to making a difference versus the end itself. Um, Duke is just an amazing school in general. And I got a chance to go there for business school. But the first day the dean stood up there and I will never forget it. And I've probably used this with a hundred different times in a hundred different ways, but said, there's no growth in comfort and there's no comfort in growth. And I think that has been the mantra that I've tried to live for the rest of my life because again, it was a, it was a pivot point for me, just like learning social entrepreneurship, because I realized part of who I am is I'm a person who likes to challenge myself and I want to consistently grow. Um, and so I'm very methodical any given year when I go back and I do the self care, I go to an ashram twice a year and I really am very disciplined about this and, and think about how am I living my life? Am I living close to my values? Am I surrounding myself with people I want to surround myself that build up my energy, et cetera. But this is one of the things I look at is, am I too comfortable? Because when you're comfortable, you don't grow. And I will put myself in very uncomfortable situations in order to learn something new. Um, and I can't tell you, I mean, there's been so many times over this past year, um, where I've just said, you know, I'm getting too comfortable either in the business cause I'm on my eighth year. So now I'm doing a new business because I was getting too comfortable with the existing business, you know, and I got very uncomfortable, you know, even to the point where I had bad weeks because I'm like, it's not going the way I wanted, but I knew I was growing, you know? So that's the thing I think we have to realize is it, we need to have a growth mindset and we need to realize that when we're uncomfortable and we're having a bad week, there is a spark or a kernel that we need to be paying attention to. Our body and our mind is telling us something that we're either headed to really amazing excellence or we're also, or potentially we're putting ourselves into a situation that just isn't working for us. And we need to learn from whatever that truth is and veer in whatever direction we need to in the journey since we're, our body and our mind is teaching us something. And most people are not uh, connected enough with themselves. They'll just pass through it, go get some alcohol, hang out with friends and move on versus really self being self analytical around what is this moment teaching me and why am I down right now? Or, or on the flip side, why am I really up right now? How do I keep staying up? How do I consistently keep doing those things that are causing me to be around positive energy? So I think that's what I spend a lot of time on is really making sure I'm as much as possible growing, which means I'm going to be uncomfortable many, many times and have many, many down moments. But then how do I also at the same time be very self-analytical so that my journey is something that is meaningful at the very end?
I, I like radical self-care because that's kind of <laughs> putting a hard name to something that's soft. Oh, uh, yes. you know. And I mean that genuinely because I, I think sometimes physical and mental health, you know, some of the things that we neglect obviously come back to, to bite us relationships and all of these soft things, which is kind of what life's about. No, but, and I mean really fun. hard data-driven stuff. Like I use data-driven stuff around, you know, I'll, I'll joke with you, but I, I'm, I'm kind of my own consultant. Like I'll do a 360 on myself and open up the results during my retreat you know, and say, what am I doing really well? And what are people confused by? And what are some things I need to stop? You know, and so part of it is really having those hard conversations with yourself of who, which friend do I need to divorce today? Who's not serving my purpose anymore? Or which friend has moved, moved away from me? And I have no reason why, why I need to reconnect with them. Because they were an amazing part of my life. You know, um, or is my job really fitting me now? You know, or do I need to ask for a raise or do I need to ask for some additional responsibility? Like what's missing in my life? So radical self-care is not just about going to the spa and not just about meditating, which I do, but it's also about deep an analysis of yourself and really making sure that the short life that we're on, that you're making every moment count. Well, I hope that's the title of your next book as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe once I, once I, once I preach the gospel of uh, social entrepreneurship and I'm on my next thing, that'll be the book. <laughs> I want to keep going with this radical self-care yeah. because uh, look, we're, we're sitting here in a week where there's been a mass shooting in, in Vegas, another one, uh, mass fatalities. And, you know, I, this is a segue uh, into what we've been talking about. I'm going to try and attempt a segue into this. Yes. You know, I think men do a, a terrible job at being open and honest with themselves and having other, yep. uh, having a, enough tools in and their you do it, And you do a terrible job because you're not taught that that's something you're supposed to be. Right, yeah, right, right. I so, agree. So I think that there's something more societally in the suicide stats come out every time there's a mass shooting. So... Uh, let's start there. People obviously, I think, are not practicing radical self-care um, that are deciding to shoot themselves because they, for whatever reason, are impulsively. I just wonder what needs to change societally. Or I'm excited about the possibility of change for men mm -hmm. um, to be able to um, come back to these so-called soft skills and to know themselves and communicate in different ways. And I try through the show to present different perspectives and different ways people live their life. There's still an opportunity to carry on this conversation. Uh, what, why is it urgent to talk about men's <laughs> men's issues and human issues? Which is, you know, how do we um, how do we know ourselves and, and interact with others in society? Yeah, no, I think you know you talked about Las Vegas, but the other thing I was thinking of when I was getting ready this morning is that this has been a tough week for men. You know, um, because if you look at what happened to um, today, Harvey Weinstein. But also, um, and I'm forgetting the football player's last name, but the one that works for the Panthers, Cam, he made some like uh, off the cuff remark to a women reporter that was deemed unacceptable. Yeah. Um, and now he's being, you know, he's paying for the consequences of that. You know, I look at both of them, you know, and I think this is the same thing I look at when, when I'm uh, with Las Vegas. And again, this is the way I think differently than probably a lot of other people think it. So you can get down on the present situation but I also look at the past situation. So all along their journeys, they had to have made comments and done those things. What did we miss along the way? You know, and I think this gets back to the radical self-care, but also part of radical self-care is creating a community of support, you know, and making sure that people are checking in with you, you know, and so you can hold people accountable for the Las Vegas situation, 
related to gun control. But to be honest, the people who I hold most accountable for that are the people who let our mental health community be degraded. And also the fact that we still as a society, um, when someone breaks their leg or when somebody gets sick from cancer, we're like, oh, I'm so, so sorry. That's terrible. But when someone has depression, you're kind of like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And even worse, there's some people who are like, it's your fault. You should just get over it. Um, you know, and no one ever says that, but that's what they think. When in reality, we're learning now that there's so many things related to mental health that are absolutely not in anybody's control. Same thing with addiction. There are a lot of aspects of uh, addiction, not to let people get off the hook, but to let people realize, you know, you could also say to that person who broke their leg, well, maybe you should have been more careful. You know, or the person who gets cancer, a lot of cancer is not, is related to how someone lives their lives. Maybe you should have eaten healthier, you know, but no one does that. Like they don't make that person the victim. They actually, you know, call them now a survivor, you know? So I think part of it is I always look back, you know, five steps, 10 steps before and say, where did society not intervene in the right way to make sure we course corrected? Where was the first woman who had a sexual harassment thing against Harvey Weinstein? And why was it not acceptable for her to step up? You know, Ashley Judd came out and said that, you know, her issue that happened. Why was it that friends of Harvey Weinstein, men, didn't pull him aside and say, this is not acceptable? You know, and that's what I'm saying. We've got as women and men hold each other accountable or the football player who said what he did. Why wasn't there someone earlier on in the conversation with them saying, here's how you treat women? You know, and I hold not only NFL accountable for those things, but college football and youth football, because where were they all along the way? Same thing with gun control. Like we've got to get vigilant about not only the guns, but the reason why people are feeling like that is their only out is to use a gun to let off their anger. You know, that at some point we didn't intervene with this individual and say, you know what, can you come talk to me? What's really going on? You know, and... I think that's the thing we've got to start having as a society is not only radical self-care, it's not about being selfish. It's also radical, like community care. You know, how much are you doing to reach out to people who, you know, have fallen down, you know, and broken their leg or gotten cancer, but you're also when they fall down and they get depressed or they have their first baby or an empty nester who just recently, you know, their kids left. How many people, you know, knock on that door and say, Hey, do you want to go out with me tonight? You know, can I bring you a casserole? You know, I mean, those are the moments that show who we are as a society. And we've moved away from that, unfortunately. We've become too self-absorbed and not um, what I consider servant leaders, looking outside of ourselves and really figuring out how do we help other people? And through helping other people, we then serve ourselves. We've somehow or another gotten success equated with, you know, money and things and cars and not enough with, how we help and further our, you know, further our community. Community is something we've talked a lot about on the show, but I, I think certainly as I recall it in my lifetime, something that was, was there and you'd feel and, and would be tangible to you, uh, whether it's knowing your neighbours or participating in community events or even my early life was in, on the Isle of Man in the UK, going down the pub and, and seeing your community down there, having a few drinks and something to eat on a Sunday afternoon. Right. I'd still class that as community. So that's kind of gone away uh, and we've become more individualistic and we've kind of replaced or something, social media has popped up in the place and we've kind of got this very superficial layer of, of right. 
episodic communication about what somebody did at a certain time and um, rather than a deep conversation or a contextual conversation or um, a meaningful <laughs> conversation about how people really are and um, you know, occasionally people post on social media and say I'm depressed, but more likely they're, they're you know, they're taking a photo of them having a drink saying, <laughs> you yeah. know, whatever. Um, I, I totally agree. It seems that if we've got social causes that we need to add to the list in, in addition to poverty, and, and it's certainly interdependent with all of these social causes that we might talk about is rebuilding community or whatever that should look like in 2017 onwards, Um what should it look like and how, how do we do it? How, how do we um, rebuild a sense of community? It's a great question. Um, I think, you know, part of it is I still believe that it happens early. You know, we have moved away or we have um, in the United States in particular, I can't speak to other education systems. I think Canada does a little bit differently. We have prioritized achievement as our ultimate goal. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm achievement oriented. I'm competitive. Like I'm not a bleeding heart by any means. But the point is, is that by valuing that and not valuing other things, we've sent the wrong message. Um, and so when you're achievement oriented, you don't ever stop and look around you and say, how do I pull other people up at the same time? You know, so at the very end of, and you know this because we talked about it, at the end of any career consultation I have, um, people will say, well, now what can I do for you? And I said, okay, I've just spent an hour giving you my advice and feedback. I didn't know you, you just sent me an email. But I sat down and did that. And the reason why I did it is because I had people who did this with me, you know, 20, 10 years ago yesterday, you know, because they were advising me on this phase of my life. I want you to go find three people who are younger than you or maybe at a different point in their life than you, but maybe peers of you and do exactly the same thing. For whatever reason, we don't realize, we are just so concentrating on our journey that we don't realize part of life, and this is the issue around equity, by the way, is it's pulling other people up. It's not enough just to say, I think this person should be equal. It's about how, what effort am I going to, to my point about, I will not be on a panel anymore, period, unless there's equity in that panel. What, what am I saying if I don't pull other people up? You know, and, and we've got to be vigilant about it because it's easy to be complacent. And I think complacency and mediocrity has been the degradation of community. Um, and so if we actually teach people how to treat one another, we actually say that part of our job is not to just make sure we're successful on the journey, that we get up the mountain and we're at the very tip top and look around and be like, how great is this? But to have people that, that then join us on the top of that mountain that we've helped pull up so that we enjoy the top of the mountain along with other people. And hopefully not people who just look like us. Lots of people, you know, a whole kaleidoscope of people. And so to me, that's what true success is. And in fact, I oftentimes tell my students, you shouldn't even be paying attention to success. You should be paying attention to this thing I call significance. You know, success is individualistic. It's about your journey. It's very much connected to power and influence and money. Significance means, what have I actually accomplished? with the resources and tools I was given uniquely by whichever power you want to believe in, have I used those tools and resources to the absolute benefit? And have, you know, or as people, positive psychologists would say, have I left, left the world stronger? Have I left the world better? You know, have I left my imprint? You know, and so I think we all have to ask ourselves that. And it means us doing our individual journey, but it's also looking side to side and saying, how is everybody else's journey going? Like, can I actually do something to help move someone forward more quickly? 
or make sure when they stumble, they don't completely fall, you know, and that's the thing I think we have to start asking ourselves. And I think we need to change our definition of success in society. And I think once we do that, community will take care of itself. He's, he's nodding his head, by I the agree. way. <laughs> I, I completely agree. But I love it when guests say things that I agree with, not because I think I'm right. I love it when p- people say things that I don't agree with too, because <laughs> I learn a lot by doing this podcast as well. And I hope you do too. Uh, or if learning is the right objective of this. Let's talk about your journey. Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about where you started off. And did you always want to be a social entrepreneur? So first of all, I would say the thing that is most important to know about me is I was exceedingly lucky. I am in the 1% of the world and that I was raised in the United States by two parents who were amazing and put their all into raising me uh, and really were completely selfless. Not only did they give back to me, but they gave back to the community. So they were teachers and eventually school administrators. So I saw through their example what you were supposed to be. And quite honestly, I just assumed everybody was that same way until I got into college. I thought everybody voted. I thought everybody had a garden. I thought everybody, you know, so these hipster things that now are cool, I that was what we were doing back then. We were making granola and, you know, producing our own eggs, that kind of stuff. I thought that was the way everybody lived um, until... I turned 18 and I got a little sister for Big Brothers Big Sisters because I said, you know what? The best birthday gift I can give myself is, you know, something that is giving back. I had great sisters, great family. Um, I grew up in a good community, um, good schools, had good opportunities. Um, And when I saw how she grew up and how she had all the same raw talent I did, but it just was not developed in the same way. She didn't have the same parents. She didn't have the same self-confidence as a result. Um, And that's part of what I tried to do is help her realize that she could do anything she wanted. We still keep in touch. We actually just saw each other. We went to Brene Brown down in Austin together. She lives there and we're still together. And I was her maid of honor. And um, she, no matter what I do the rest of my life, if people ask me the question, what's the greatest thing you've ever done, it'll be connecting with her because of what you said, I learned so much because I was, it was like the cold shower I needed to realize, oh my gosh, no one else grew up the way I did, or, you know, very few people did. Um, and so I became just a warrior for, you know, I can't change people's zip codes. I can't make parents come together, but I can try to help all kids you know, or seniors or, you know, people who are that what I call the underdogs, you know, have feel like they have resources and can do anything they want. Um, and so I, I would say my story is typical, but it's also atypical. Um, it also had a lot to do with the parents that I had and that I was honestly just lucky. I was really just lucky. And I took that and I said, you know what, I'm going to try to make sure other people are lucky too, as much as I possibly can. Um, So I mentioned my pivot point was getting the book. Um, I've also taken a lot of risk in my life and I've been given, you know, I had the chutzpah, you know, that's my dad, the football coach who, you know, basically said, it doesn't matter that you're a girl, you can do whatever you want. So I took opportunity, you know, by its horns and and made things happen in the nonprofit sector. Um, So I made complacency is never anything I've ever lived with. Mediocrity is something I've never lived with. Um, I've always pushed myself to excellence of the people around me, much to their chagrin. My employees will tell you they hate that, but <laughs> I'm always about excellence and doing things with excellence. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, part of it is, like I said, I was just lucky. 
Uh, you received an Athena Award. Yes, I did. Let's talk a little bit about that and then we'll get on to something that you talked about in yeah. acceptance. What is an Athena Award? And uh, Ah, yes. <laughs> okay, so this is a, a, a award that the Chamber of Commerce gives out to both a young, and they don't call it old, but they give it to somebody who's much farther along on their journey than I am. Um, so somebody who I think has exemplified the concept of Athena, and it actually is given across the country and maybe even internationally, uh, just to people who are, in my case, up and comers. In the case of the folks who, other women, it's people who've left a legacy. One of the lines, because we always end up talking about Dallas on the show, and one of the things, you said many good things, and I'll put a link to that in, in the show notes and people can, can watch it. It's a very emotional and very um, thoughtful acceptance speech so congratulations well, i don't believe in acceptance speeches that are about you i wanted to impart, right, impart right. like wisdom so you can kind of say yeah i am great <laughs> <laughs> thank you bow down before me and recognize my brilliance you said uh, a lot of other good things which i'll let people listen to themselves one of the things since we're gonna just talk about dallas in a second you you said something about creating the dallas of your dreams so what is the dallas of your dreams you know, so I talked about that in the political campaign, too, and it's really an illustration. And, and I, you know, for me, I grew up right outside of Dallas. You know, we grew up on 50 acres. And so the way in which I was oriented is every night the sun would set on the Dallas, um, you know, skyline. And I would see just the kind of majesticness of, you know, the twinkling of the, the skyline. And I remember thinking, that's where I want to go. You know, it was like those those movie moments, you know. And so every single day I would sit outside on my swing set or in this big tree and look out that direction. And it was kind of my meditative moment. Like it's also something I realized that I meditated before I realized that it was a thing, you know, of I would meditate on like what I wanted to accomplish and what I needed to do. And even as a little girl, you know, the change I wanted to make in my community or my school. Um, and so to me, I didn't know what was in Dallas. I just knew I wanted to be there. You know, to me, it was a lot like the the song in Hamilton. You know, it was it was where the action was. You know, it's where the stuff stuff got done. And so I wanted to be in the city where the action was. And uh, it just I f fell in love with Dallas. And there's lots of people who've tried to get me to move other places. And even when after business school, you will appreciate this because you know this. But people who maybe have always lived in Dallas won't realize this. But Dallas is not a place where people are like you know, oh, you're moving to Dallas. They're like, oh, you're moving to Dallas. You know, I know you grew up there, but why don't you go to San Francisco or why don't you go to DC or New York? Like people would appreciate you more there. You have more of your tribe there, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I know I could go, you know, I could be a, uh, you know, a small fish in a big pond with a lot of other small fishes, or I could go to the big pond where I grew up and hopefully create more fish, you know, and have more fish join me. You know, again, the analogy of going up to the mountain and bringing people along with you. And it is harder. You know, I have to say there are some times when, you know, especially during the election, I wondered why am I working so hard? You know, why don't people appreciate more the depths that I'll go? And the fact that I forgo, I, I, I forgoed a, you know, Fortune 500 six-figure consistent salary to do this do-gooder work. You know, um, but, you know, and there were moments where I'm like, yeah, I probably could have changed the trajectory of my life a little bit if I had taken a corporate job, but I wouldn't have been as happy, you know. So um, so anyway, Dallas of my dreams, very simply, is a place where that little girl, that little boy, no matter where they grow up, whether it's in a great family, a great zip code or a zip code that we know needs some work, 
but they have great resilience and fun ideas and want to make a difference in their community, that they can have an equal opportunity to go on and be whatever they want, that there are no limitations, you know, because that's how I grew up. There were no limitations. Um, I could do whatever I wanted. You know, my thing was I wanted to go to Dallas. Somebody else's thing may be going and winning the Nobel Prize, you know, or becoming an artist on Broadway, whatever it is. Um, and so that's really what I want. That's what I want. The Dallas of my dreams equips people, gives them the ladder. You know, Car Andrew Carnegie talked about that a lot, that part of our job is to create the ladder. You can't have someone, you can't force someone to go up the ladder, but you give them the ladder and you show them what that next step will be and what that next step is. And, and you make sure that the ladder is accessible and that the rungs are equidistant from each other. Because in many cases, in many of our communities, the ladder exists, but the rungs are so far from each other and they may even be taken out of the ladder that it's hard for them to see that they can actually get there. Um, so just making sure that people feel like that they can get wherever they want to go um, and there are no limitations. And we as a society look to our left, look to our right, and there are people there to help support us. What is the heart and soul of Dallas? How, how do you explain it to people that are not from here or even people that, that are living here? Because I think you could pick 10 people from Dallas that have lived here their whole life and they'd have a completely different view of what Dallas is and the opportunities here. Well, and I think that's in and of itself what makes Dallas so great is that um, for me, you know, we obviously come from a pioneer kind of a maverick mentality. Like you didn't, you didn't move to Texas and you know, I'm a, a fifth generation Texan. You didn't move here unless you had some guts, you know, and you had grit, you know, and I love those two things because those are, I think, important to kind of cultivate in people. Um, so for me, we have that kind of pioneer mindset, which I think is really unique. Um, and it means that, you know, we could be, um, a land where all dreams come true. Like it, it's entirely in our, in our possibility for us to accomplish that. We're also in comparison to other cities, we're relatively young, you know, we're not in New York, we're not a Boston, you know, or DC where it's set in a lot of ways. It's a mature city. It has a lot of infrastructure, you know, it's harder to change. I think Dallas is still a little bit of a blank slate. You know, we're still trying to figure out what our industries are. We may be oil and gas, but we also recognize that there's a future in a lot of other places. Um, so we're doing a lot in healthcare and technology and logistics. Um, and so the fact that Amazon's considering Dallas, I think is a testament to that. And the fact that Toyota moved here. Um, so what I tell people is that there's a lot of electricity going on in Dallas. Um, and I, that's a, it's somewhat of a good news, bad news scenario. That's the good news. The good news is you're gonna be around a lot of people that have electricity and have ideas and are just excited and wanna you know, go somewhere. Um, and I love that about Dallas, is that it really is a city of opportunity. You know, and I think Mark Cuban talked about that too. You know, he's a product of Dallas as well. Um, but I think the thing that is our, our um, thing that we need to work toward, you know, kind of the thing that is the, that our test as a city will be electricity without a grid, without the invention of the light bulb, without a system doesn't produce anything. It's just electricity. It doesn't produce light. And so part of what I think we're going to be challenged by in these next couple of years is letting all these maverick people sometimes put, a, put away their ego and decide instead they're going to shift to eco and say, how do we collectively come together to build a system that produces light? Because it's more important that we produce light than it is that I get credit for whatever it is my piece of the puzzle is, you know, and that that's what's important. And so I think that's where we get hung up in, you name the issue, poverty, 
um, education, um, in the social issues, but this is also in us attracting other companies into this community, is we do get too caught up in our, what our limited view of the world is without having a more bigger view, without having an open mindset. And we get caught up in things like Confederate memorials, which we should get caught up with. But we let that particular narrative define who we are for that time period, rather than realizing that there's a bigger picture that we're fighting towards, which is about equity, which is about being an opportunity for all, which is about creating light for everybody. And so I think we're at this point where we've got a lot of electricity, and I think it's going to be up to disciplined, thoughtful leaders that channel that energy towards true results for everybody. Um, and I think that's kind of the juxtaposition we're working on right now. Um, and I think that uh, we've got some really great leaders um, and I think we need to bring more people to the table. And I think we've got to develop some skill sets around maybe resisting some of our maverick notions and coming together more, being more open-minded, you know, really listening to the other person from across the table who may have a different experience than us. Um, some of the things, the social entrepreneurial principles we talked about earlier, those are some things I think that could be highly beneficial to making sure Dallas, you know, not only is the city of my dreams or, you know, a place where everybody can achieve their dream, but we collectively create light um, and that everybody can succeed in Dallas. And it does become a beacon of a city that can transform and you can be whoever you want to be here in Dallas. You know, we're not just one thing. We are a lot of things and you can create your own Dallas in a lot of ways. Let's talk about current projects that you're working mm -hmm. on. What do you want to tell the listeners about? So I've got a couple of things that you should be on the look for. Um, first of all, I do have a weekly blog called Social Trend Spotter. Um, so if you like this um, and you like kind of provocative thinking, but also you like tools to add to your toolkit, those power tools, um, definitely subscribe. It comes to you on a weekly basis and you can get it through Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, but you can also get it in your weekly um, inbox uh, on Thursday mornings. Uh, I also, um, I do a lot of teaching and training. Um, in fact, there's an entrepreneur summit that's coming up in Fort Worth that I'm moderating. I'm also going to be teaching a class. I'm really thrilled to be teaching again uh, at the University of Texas Arlington this spring. So if these were topics that you're interested in and you want to make sure you have that toolkit completely full to the brim so that you can help your nonprofit in all the ways they need to be helped, um, whether it's on the outside or on the inside, um, definitely encourage you to take the course or take a piece of the course. Uh, and then lastly, I'm actually turning all of these kind of live things into an e-learning course. And so we're going to be launching a, a new company called Changemaker, uh, which is anybody can be a change maker, you know, whether you're working for a company or you're a student or you're a baby boomer wanting to go back into the workforce and really, again, giving you the opportunity to create these power tools, you know, to build the power tools and then go back into the organizations you love and care about and actually transform them. Um, so it's less of a, I'm going to talk at you. It's more, how do, how do we give you the information you need and how do you take those things back into your organization? So, uh, part of our goal is to create a chain reaction so that more and more people are exposed to great information and the best information so that we can really elevate the sector and really create this kind of change we all are kind of yearning for, I think. I'm going to talk about life lessons now and we've, we've talked about so many good things so far and i'll attempt to sum them up next week on linkedin or something like that the listeners all different uh, backgrounds i guess uh, all around the world but I, I guess what's in common in this total life complete podcast is people exploring what it means to get the most out of life as individuals as society mm -hmm. and, and whatever um so given that context uh what are the the few life lessons or the 
things that people really should take away from today or from your personal experience that you want people to know? Well, I think the first thing is life's a journey, you know, and no matter where you started, you can end it in an absolutely different way. Um, No matter where you are right now, you can completely change your trajectory, you know, and it doesn't take much to change that, you know, so if you're stuck for whatever reason, it is really just a matter of a discipline, a support system and a plan that really can change your trajectory. Uh, So I think that's the most important thing is I meet a lot of people who for whatever reason are stuck. And I'm like, it's completely in your power to unstick yourself, you know, and it's, you know, it does, it's going to take some time and it's going to take some self-reflection, but you could be in a very different place a year from now if you want it to be. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those people come back to me and they're like in Africa or they're, you know, they've, for whatever reason, between our conversation and that light inside them, they've finally been released. Like whatever permission they needed to have in order to complete their life, they are doing it, which is great. But I think the second thing is, is just some things that I take stock in on a regular basis is, um, I don't believe in time management. I believe in energy management. So I'm constantly paying attention to who I surround myself, the activities that I'm doing, not getting caught up in my, my iPhone and what's, what's on my agenda, but am I really spending the time with the people and the activities that I care about? Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, 20% of my time is on emails and worthless things that just happens. That's a result of the life we live. There are just some things that are mechanical that you have to spend time on, but making sure that you are doing things that energize yourself. And on a regular basis, I try to, you know, if I'm down, I inject myself or if I'm up, I, you know, just try to remind myself of how lucky I am. Um, I also am really careful about getting too comfortable, you know, and really continuing to push myself. And there's lots of ways you can get out of your comfort zone. I'm a big believer in international travel. I'm also a big believer in mentorship, you know, and reaching down underneath and pulling people up. That's going to instantly change you. Um, I also think that the world and the universe sends you signals of the way in which you can improve everybody's journey. And so I think being open to those signals, you know, so if you see some uh, elderly person across the street who's struggling, you know, walk across the street, start having a conversation with them and it'll build, you know, or if there is an elementary school down the street from you and you've never checked in with the principal, you know, check in with the principal and say, Hey, you know what? I have some extra time every Thursday. Is there a kid who's behind in reading that I can help, you know, and those things are may seem very little to you, but they're transformative for that other other person. Um, I can guarantee you that. Um, so I think it's really understanding the power that each of us have individually to look to our left, look to our right, look up, look down and really be a source for change in our own life, but also then realize that we can be a source for change in other people's lives. Um, I have a Ted talk that kind of walks you through it. If you're a very mechanical person and I am, I fall in that category and need like, here's step one, here's step two. Um, I ha- I do have that in a Ted talk. I've really thought it through and I kind of have given you some things. So check that out. It's it's really super quick uh, and you see some fun pictures of me when I was little. Uh, so it's a, it's a fun little kind of journey for me as well to do the Ted talk. And then I would say the last thing, and this is the thing that we talked about, um, which is find your passion, but at the same time, make sure you're practicing radical self-care because I think people who found their passion give themselves fully and completely over to their passion without realizing that there are sometimes consequences to that. And they also sometimes feel like if they're not all the time working on their passion that, you know, they're somehow or another not going to achieve what they want to achieve. I've found by in the last four years practicing radical self-care on my side, I've actually achieved more 
because I have greater clarity, I have greater connection with people, all these things that are so important. So even though I spend less time on my work, I am far, far more um, influential, I'm far more grounded, um, and I'm far more connected with the work that I'm doing, which causes me to have greater results. Um, so like I said, I don't believe in time management anymore. I don't think throwing time at something actually solves the problem, or money, by the way. I don't think solving, you know, throwing money at something solves a problem either. I think it's careful, disciplined reflection and a real plan that actually accomplishes that. Anything else that we haven't covered up for any other final words for the listeners? Um, no, just I'm appreciative that you guys are willing to spend your time with us today. That's a gift to me. Um, and I hope you got some aha moment and I hope we would continue the conversation. You know, part of the reason I do what I do is to connect with people like you. So I would love to hear from you, whether it's through email or Facebook or questions that you have, and who knows, maybe it'll, it'll be a second podcast part two. Um, and maybe we could take some of your questions and we can turn it into our next podcast. Suzanne Smith. Thanks for joining me today. All right. Thank you. To stay up to date on all the things going on with Total Life Complete, you can sign up to the mailing list by visiting www.totallifecomplete.com and you'll also get special offers and discount codes for events. Let me know what you want out of the podcast by emailing me at podcast at totallifecomplete.com. All the best.